Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. So President Biden must hold the line on the stimulus. It's fine, she said in the spirit of unity, that Biden's first big White House meeting was with 10 Republican senators. senators. There's actually no harm in hearing them out. But there would be enormous harm to go along with the paltry stimulus package that they offered to the president. We are falling back into one of those terrible confusions where a growing economy and a booming stock market obscure and are used to obscure the plight of real humans. So let's restate two points. Point number one, bipartisanship is a path, not a goal. If we can do the right things together, fine. But if we can't, we can't. Doing what needs to be done is the most important thing right now. Unity is not going to pay my rent. Point two, millions of Americans are out of work, falling behind on their rent, struggling to feed their families, buried in debt. The improvements we are seeing in the economy will not reach many of these fellow Americans for years, shall I say, even ever. It will be years before the labor market recovers, years. Now, my source for this is not some like leftist economist, economist that we all love. No, my source for this is, on, is the Congressional Budget Office, that middle-of-the-road nonpartisan judgment. As Biden was meeting with those Republican senators, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, issued a report on Monday. Like many economic reports, it looked at a couple of different things a different couple of different ways. If you measure the overall size of the economy, the total of everything we make or do, the CBO says that by later this year, we will be back to where we were before the pandemic. Okay. But if you look at human beings, workers, our fellow citizens, it will be years before everyone tossed out of a job is back at work. The CBO also said, in other words, surprise, surprise, not everyone is getting their share as the American economy grows. Huh. It just doesn't work for everyone, does it? Now, there are two ways to oppose help to working people in this situation. Let's show that uh, headline right now. One is to focus on the overall growth number and say we don't need more help. That's what most of Republicans are saying. The New York Times summed that up, that logic up neatly in this headline from their print edition. Quote, budget office sees a return to economic strength even with no federal aid. That headline is an invite to oppose the president's plan. But there is a second way that the CBO study can be used to resist the stimulus package. Remember, confusion is the enemy of action. Confusion is the enemy of action. Just sow some doubt and see if you can freeze some folks in their tracks. Then there's the New York Times digital headline. The digital version of the New York Times seems to lean in that direction. Same story about the CBO report, but this headline, U.S. economy is healing, but budget office says workers have a long way to go. That is what the 10 Republican senators told Biden. Sure, we need to do something, but your $1.9 trillion is way too much. So let's do less than a third of that, and then we can see how things go. So Mr. President, Mr. President Biden, hold the line Imagine your New York Times had arrived this morning with a headline that said, working people left behind in recovery from pandemic, Congressional Budget Office says. That would stiffen your spine. 
And as that great imperialist Henry Kissinger used to say, it has the added virtue of being true. You've been saying the right things, Mr. President. The risk of giving too little help is far greater than the risk of doing too much. Exactly. Stick to that. We need to go big and those Republican senators can go home. Just go home. Stop listening to them. Stop quoting that side of the study. This has to be about workers. Otherwise, we will never recover. Wall Street does not bring home the bacon. Wall Street does not keep small businesses open. Wall Street does not pay my rent. It might pay for those Republican senators' campaigns, though. Just thinking. All right, we have a great show today. We have... An interesting conversation coming because there's an amazing AOC live that she did last night. We're going to discuss it with our panel, Napoleon DeLegend and Joshua Khan Russell. And right after this break, we have the one and only Sarah Jaff. She's the author of Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. I know the feeling, but... I never feel alone here. Uh, special love to our moderators today. You guys are active there. We are so grateful to you. We're going to give you some more shout outs later on in the day. Uh, in the meantime, if you're in that chat, make sure to, to, to like, push the like button, uh, share our work all over social media. That's the love that keeps this show going, as you know. And of course, the patrons are the ones who keep the lifeblood going. So join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. And we will be right back with the one and only Sarah Jaff. Hello, welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I am so excited to have a dear old friend uh, from the movement and other spaces. Sarah Jaff is joining us. She is the author of Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. She's also a fellow at the Type Media Center, and she is a you know also a reporter. She's been reporting on a ton of stuff uh, over the years. I'm sure you recognize her work in many different publications. Congratulations on your new book and for basically uh, venting my life experience onto several pages. <laughs> yep, you're on mute. You. I'm on mute. My headphones are falling out. I'm having a long day here. Um, Thank you. (laughs) It's good to be back. Nice to see you. All right. So I think that the point you're making is pretty clear, but what inspires you to write this? (laughs) Other than our utter exhaustion all the time. Um, Yeah. I mean, so before I was a journalist, I was a service worker. I waited tables for many a year and then finally sort of went to grad school and did the whole process of like getting to a point where I can be a professional journalist only to find my conditions actually hadn't changed all that much. Mm. And, um, and I, you know, I became a journalist writing about labor and was talking to a whole lot of people whose conditions also were a whole lot like the ones that I had been facing both as a service worker and in journalism. And all of this was happening sort of in the wake of a giant global crisis. I'm talking about, of course, the 2008 financial crisis, not the one we're in right now. It's hard to keep them straight now, you know? Um, and One has an illness, the other yeah. doesn't. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, right. The other one is less contagious in some ways and more contagious in others. Um, so, yeah, so in looking at the ways that, like, the structures of work have changed over time, not just in this massive crisis, but also the sort of slower processes of change, I started to think about, like, okay, well, what is it that, 
has actually told us that we should love our jobs. Why is that an expectation that we even have? Has that been around forever? It turns out, no, it has not. And yeah, what brought us to this horrible, horrible place where we're all working from home and yet supposed to sort of be grateful and excited about it every day? You know, it's anybody who's ever had uh, parents or grandparents like to stick it to you and say, you know, you have it so much better. I, I have these memories of my grandparents who were immigrants and who um, escaped uh, a dictator and he, you know, they, they, they worked their butts off just in, in depression or Greece after they escaped Albania uh, to get on, you know, my grandfather particularly the last boat, coming into Ellis Island. He had like raised money in depression era Greece, you know, for 10 years or whatever it was, and then got to the United States. And, and he just always thought, how could you be so privileged that you even think about what you want to do in life? I had two choices, shoemaker or teacher. <laughs> like, yeah. And it, I mean, I, I feel, I've always felt that weight of, of just being grateful that I have the opportunity to number one, work from home, uh, have this show, have, you know, just the life course, even when I was serving as, 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 you know, you mentioned your time, the service work, I always felt exhausted. And then I would talk to my grandparents and then they make me feel like I'm the most privileged person on the planet. (laughs) So, I mean, is, is it part of this, the culture that we have in our country of like, if you work hard, um, it'll pay off and, you know, you should be lucky to be able to do what you love or supposedly love. Yeah, I think the thing that's interesting, right, is we sort of assume that this is a story of privilege of like people who went to school, did an interview yesterday where somebody was like, isn't this just a narrative about like, you know, liberal arts graduates? And I'm like, hey, first of all, I feel attacked. But second of all, no, it's not really just a story of of liberal arts graduates, right? It's also a story of everybody who has to go to work in a grocery store during a pandemic, who has to smile, even though they're wearing a mask now, you're still sort of expected to smile and hopefully you can see it in your eyes. Um, And perform this whole thing. And like, it's actually been fascinating to talk to people who are doing service work during the pandemic, because they're like, actually, the emotional part of my job is even more intense because we get customers who like, I'm the only other person they've seen all week. Oh, wow. And they just want like an interaction with a human, which again, like, I can relate. I have also not seen another person in person in several days. And that like... The intensity of that, when you're also doing that for low wages, and now you're doing that in like horrifying conditions, and if you got hazard pay for a little while, it's probably gone. That's actually like, it's a story that spread into so many different kinds of work that, you know, I actually trace it back to something that has very little to do with being an, you know, liberal arts grad, and actually has a lot more to do with being a woman, and the way that gendered work has moved out of the home and into the paid workplace, but it's still undervalued, and we're still sort of expected to do it out of love. Well, I mean, what was the the statistics that have come out related to gender and this pandemic is jarring. But just on the surface level, if you're going to talk about the frontline workers that we have witnessed uh, bear some of the most egregious um, just treatment by by whatever the government or or uh, their CEOs or whatever, um, flight attendants, teachers. Uh, nurses, of course, these are all women led industries, women made like women led in the unions. And it is majority women made up of in those industries. And yet even the Biden administration, Biden Harris administration, 
for some reason, there's a disconnect in how much of the selection, how much of this economy has really fallen on their backs. Yeah. yeah. Um, is that, is that, do you think it's like a purpose? There's a purpose behind, um, you know, we talk about frontline workers, we should be like frontline women. It's women. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I'm watching so closely right now is all of these fights over school reopening, right? Mm -hmm. And like, I am not a parent, so I must, you know, say to your audience right now that I have no idea what it's like to be like trying to homeschool your kid while also trying to do your day job. That's awful. But also lots of teachers are also parents. And this this expectation, though, that teachers should just sort of march back into the building in many cases, these like really overcrowded school buildings. Right. I mean, New York City, the school buildings are 100 years old and and have twice as many kids in them as they were supposed to when they were built. And you just sort of are expected to, to march back in there and sacrifice yourself and I mean, oh, God, I wrote about this in the spring and 80 something New York City public schools employees had died at that point. And, you know, it's now it's February. It's February. I don't even know what day it is. And yeah. And there's still this expectation that if teachers don't want to sort of just go back to work in person in the classroom right now that they are being selfish somehow, that they are not caring enough because they should just be naturally sort of sacrificing because they Mm -hmm. love the kids. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also just this this like mixed messages about children not being able to carry uh, COVID as much, and and you know not to mention all the, the the staff that has to be in the building. Fine, if it's not even children, if you want to use that science, which I don't buy entirely, yeah. um, then what about just this is the staff? I mean, right. teachers coming in and and uh, cleaning staff and mm-hmm. uh, nurses and cafeteria staff. I mean, we know what it takes to to make a school function, you're just putting more people in a space and putting them at risk without proper precautions, um, especially in the winter where you yeah. can't just like do outdoor schooling or, or whatever. Right, exactly. You can't just take class to the park. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, it's made it really, really clear. It's so interesting, right? Cause like, you know, when you see teachers go on strike, like pre pandemic times, the first argument from like Rahm Emanuel or Austin Butner would be, you know, Oh, they don't care about the children. They're just being selfish. And now it's sort of super clear that like the teachers who are, you know, busting their butts to teach virtually, I've just been reporting a story on that. So I've been talking to teachers from all over the country about like their desperate attempts to make virtual teaching engaging and interesting. So the kids are still learning. The teachers are still working extremely hard, but the thing that, you know, the mayors and the Lori Lightfoots of this world really value is having a place to put the kids so that the rest of capital accumulation can keep going. That's right. And not to mention um, this this labor that women have by being at home. I mean, there's been so much reporting on this, like the the unpaid, never, never paid labor of just keeping your home running the mm-hmm. uh, while working right, um, right. the gender dynamics. Right. And yeah. to dealing with your kids. And, you know, the, there's just so many different aspects of this. So. Uh, you clearly did not know that there was going to be a pandemic um, or a Great Depression 2.0 before you wrote this book. So Nostradamus, can you tell us how we get out of this now? Thanks. Oh, my goodness. You know, okay, so I turned in the book at the end of last February. Turned in the draft, was like, yay, this is great. I got a few days. I was in I was in the UK. I went and spoke at a conference. I flew back to America and went into lockdown. Um, and that was that was an experience. And, you know, at first we're like, oh, this is going to be a few weeks. No, it's going to be a few months. 
now it's going to be who the hell knows. But like the way, you know, the way that I had to sort of go back to everybody and say like, okay, so work was already not great. How has it changed? And, you know, the answer was pretty universally, like it's gotten worse, whether again, whether people were still going to work or whether they were working from home or whether they'd been, you know, put out of work. So, yeah, it's been a weird 10 months of, of talking about work. I started joking in, in March and April, like, you know, hashtag everybody's a labor journalist now. <laughs> because suddenly, though, that like work was this, com- this subject that was on everyone's mind in a way that, you know, that actually asked some questions about like, what is essential work? What is the work that actually is required to keep all of us alive and going, whether that be the teachers or whether that be, you know, the Hunts Point grocery workers, right, who do the distribution of the groceries that we all buy at our grocery stores in New York City, like the essential work that we don't even notice half the time because we don't even know where it happens, but that exists to keep us going. The delivery drivers, Mm -hmm. the, the mail, the U.S. Postal Service, which, you know, they've been trying to destroy for decades, um, all of this work that suddenly we have a, a moment to appreciate in a different way. And of course, that hasn't shaken out in it being paid better in a lot of cases, or it was temporarily paid better. And then, you know, the bosses yank that back as quickly as they can. And we've also had sort of experiences with like, oh, my goodness, the government can just send everybody a check. It turns out. Wow. Okay. Like we have a lot of information, a lot of things that they said weren't possible became possible briefly when we were in an emergency. And they've been trying to sort of squish that back down since, you know, lower our expectations back down. And so that's the, the fight going forward, right, is to not forget the things that happened in those moments, to not forget that there was a moment where cities were opening up hotels to house the homeless and to not forget that they could just send everybody a check, that unemployment benefits could actually be at a livable level, that we could actually consider what work is essential to keep us going and what work is maybe not essential and maybe we don't need it at all. And and what would that be? What would some examples of non-essential labor be? Oh, well, I'm not that far from Wall Street. Um, so I, could, <laughs> I think we could start there. That would be, we could eliminate all of that. That is a whole bunch of unnecessary. The internet proved some of that already. Oh my goodness. Yes. Well, Short well. sales? Maybe that's yeah. the start. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's funny because people have asked me about like, I'm doing interviews for this book at the same time as this, you know, story is blowing up. And the way that like, some people are clearly doing this just because they, you know, want to punch a hedge funder, which, you know, I understand, but also people are doing it because like work is terrible. So like, maybe you can maybe just gamble enough to get out of it. Like this, this fantasy of the stock market, which is definitely not going to work, but the, in, the interest in the fantasy is still interesting. Um, but yeah, so, right. So like, okay, we don't, we don't need wall street. That's one. Um, But other things, like I think about the workers at the GE plant early on during pandemic who demanded to, instead of making parts for military aircraft, make ventilators. Yeah. You know, and that was, again, that was a moment where people are saying like, this work would be a whole lot more meaningful if we were making things to save lives right now, rather than making things to, I mean, in that case, sort of explicitly take lives. Right. But yeah, like all of these questions about what is the thing we're doing? What is the thing that we would rather be doing? But also what 
what do we really need to have done and how do we distribute that work fairly so we don't have a sort of three-class system where some people are just unemployed, some people are working from home, and others are going out to work day after day? So if, if, if we were to create the conditions, and, and maybe it does come out of this pandemic, although, as you said, uh, it's about remembering what is possible. And, and I think that's probably on us as progressives to continue to just uh, chime in and throw it at our, at our lawmakers. Um, but if, 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 if what there was this great awakening, um, when you had someone like a Sarah Nelson meeting with uh, Chuck Schumer and Chuck Schumer's learning about MMT, whether or not, you know, clearly he, he didn't end up choosing that side, but he at least <laughs> wow. learned about it. Yeah. So there was an awakening. Um, there were conversations that were being had it, among institutional Democrats that you would have never thought. I mean, even yeah. Senator Schumer, maybe it's just the fear of, of, of being challenged. Who knows what, what that comes from? But there was an awareness that mm-hmm. was not even amongst the public and progressives and Democrats and more institutional Democrats of the possibilities that um, could be presented afterwards, not just to get us out of a crisis, but if we'd actually worked within that realm, we might not be in this crisis. Do you think that there's, if the conditions were to shift, even just like 20%, um, we may potentially live in a world where more folks could work towards something that they, they they actually do love, that people who are writers could be paid uh, fairly, uh, that artists would be invested in. And, and that's something that we used to do like not yeah. too long ago in this yeah. country. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that I, I, you know, write this book and it's this thick because I spend a lot of time talking about history is to remember that it was it was less than 100 years ago that, you know, the Roosevelt administration threw a bunch of money at artists. And it was, you know, we should also remember that it was because a bunch of communists organized a bunch of artists into an artist union and demanded that artists be treated as workers under the recovery project. And so, you know, it's it's. It's a history that shows that this can change, that our relationships to work and capital can change, but it does require organizing. We can't just sort of wait and hope that everybody, you know, hope that like Chuck Schumer has has had an enlightening moment because (laughs) I don't trust that to happen. But I do think, you know, right now this week, there's there's prep for a a union vote in an Amazon warehouse in Alabama. Um, (laughs) Huge, huge story. Right. The Chicago teachers are facing down with Lori Lightfoot yet again. Um, I don't understand why she doesn't learn, but um, nurses have been organizing and going on strike to demand safer conditions. Like there have been a whole lot of little labor rebellions that are adding up. And I think you know, once it's a little bit safer, but we still remember all of this stuff, there is potential for that to get really explosive. I mean, so, so it's it's really interesting to say that because I feel like every time there is the potential for a strike or major organizing or um, whatever the efforts are, if it's if nurses across California right now, um, it's an it's an educational moment. Mm-hmm. It's it's other workers look to that experience and say, oh, we can, we can do this too. And so you're saying that post pandemic yeah. or when folks are vaccinated, but the, they're still dealing with the ramifications of the economy and, and, you know, the consequences of them not being in safe environments, yeah. uh, there are going to be more strikes or potential strikes. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I can't, you know, I can't promise it, but uh, I certainly think that, we, I mean, we've been in, again, sort of subsequent crises, crisis after crisis for my entire adult life. Right. And each time a little bit of that consensus that there is no alternative falls away. 
And we're, you know, we're hanging on to sort of capitalist realism by our fingertips right now, desperately clinging to the idea that we can return to some sort of normal. And then like, we've got an even bigger crisis looming, which is the climate crisis, Mm -hmm. which is not going away and we can't vaccinate against it. We have to like take much bigger actions and have much bigger solutions. And all of this is, is just, again, it's just putting that many more cracks in this belief that there isn't a better way to do things. Wall Street's not going to solve the climate crisis. Wall Street is not going to solve the climate crisis. Wall Street can't even solve a Reddit board crisis. <laughs> you outdid it. I was going to say Wall Street can't create the Green New Deal. What? No, no. Oh, man. All right. Uh, we have a couple comments I just want to throw at you before yeah. we, we wrap up. Uh, that dude, Zoot. <laughs> from Twitch says, I love when I have to say these things out loud. <laughs> Very proper. Can you imagine, like, um, you know, Sam Donaldson saying this on air? <laughs> like, that dude, Zoot, says, being a teacher is already a sacrificial job. Mm-hmm. Patrick Emmerich says, my wife always says, uh, why, why should she be expected to, she's a teacher, to subsidize the education of the community's kids by giving more and more without anything in return? Um you know, and there's this this added aspect of it, which I mean, I know you've covered how much teachers have to go into their own pocketbooks mm-hmm. uh, to pick up the pieces. I mean, yeah. teachers who are severely underfunded. I mean, it's like underpaid, uh, shocking levels. If you actually take a chance to look at how much your city pays your mm-hmm. average teacher, um, and then has to go into their own uh, accounts, and you know they're putting themselves online, and and yeah. Um, great comments. So Sarah, uh, moving forward, I mean, this, this is a great premise for where, where we're this, the world that we're in today. And I'm really happy that you started with, um, talking about how you were a server. And then after you went to grad school, accumulated, I, what I assume is a ton of debt, uh, you, your pay and, and your work level was similar. Yes. So you said crisis to crisis. I think there's something, um, that's undeniable about, the generation that maybe have graduated college post, if, she, if they went to came of age, mm-hmm. uh, say in the mid two thousands and above. So as we get older and gain more power and, um, the, the writing is like right there on the wall, it's not some theory. It's not some like far off idea, the consequences of this generation and the debts acquired and the crises and the, and the, the little savings that if they even have any, um, don't you think that, that the lawmakers are just going to have to deal with it because they usually deal with it when a crisis is in front of them? <laughs> Maybe why Chuck Schumer is talking about eliminating yeah. student debt, $50,000. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I, I wish that they had eliminated it sooner because I finally paid mine off last year, but this year, <laughs> not even last year. Um, and yeah, but, but it is, it is a thing, right? And like one of the things that happens is you get lawmakers who start to be our age, right? Like, I don't even like to think about how much younger than me AOC actually is because it just makes me feel old. But yeah, when you you get people who have actually lived with this experience, right? People who have actually come through this start to move into those positions of power. That is extremely important, I think. And so run for office, everybody, Um, but also organize your workplace. Because I think those two things always go hand in hand, right? We so, we're sort of talking a lot these days because we have a new administration. We've got some at least pro labor noises from them, um, a couple of good appointees at the labor board. So, going okay, what what can the Biden administration do to make organizing easier? But the thing is, we've only ever gotten sort of good pro labor 
legislation in this country when workers were already raising hell. So, you know, it's got to be both. It's got to be the pressure from below that is going to keep them remembering that they need to do something about this because I'm old enough to remember the Employee Free Choice Act, which mm-hmm. died under Obama's first term yep. when they ha- when they did, in fact, have 60 votes in the Senate, which I will never not be mad about. Um, there, there's, there's another thing that I'm scarred by generationally. Um, F- we'll have you on to talk about like the lessons that we uh, learned out of those first two years of the Obama administration, why we are not going to let them happen again. Seriously, uh, yeah. That's a whole other segment. <laughs> yeah. But it is, it is rem- a reminder that, you know, the, the organizing that people are doing in the workplace, in the streets right now is going to have an effect on the rules, the changes, the things that get put in place to affect all of our lives going forward. And they're going to feel it in a way that I know many folks have come of age in the uh, Trump administration or 2016 and beyond. They're actually going to feel it differently. I know that's really hard. And I know some folks want to equate Democrats and Republicans all the time. Trump was a version of a Republican that did not have feelings. He ignored the people on the streets in front of the White House. He walked past them with a Bible and 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 mocked them to their faces. Um, he put babies in cages. And I'm not saying that was something, you know, there, there were policies in place, but he he forced sterilizations on women. That, as much as we want to criticize the mainstream Democrats, they still have to respond to us. And if they don't, we raise hell, as you said. Um, there's a reason why there is so much pressure in, Washington, in, a, in, in Chicago right now. There have been, over a decade, recent organizing with the teachers in exposing these Democrats. There's a reason why Ron Manuel is not in the White House right now. It's not because Joe Biden thinks it's time for him to take a break. It's because of that raising yeah. hell. No, exactly. It's absolutely, you know, it's been made toxic for yes. certain of these people and certain of these ideas to be revived, you know, and like we were talking the other day on Twitter about sort of Janet Yellen speaking fees. And it's like, yes, these are bad. Also, good Lord, I'm really glad it's not Larry Summers again. Yeah. You know, and that is that's not because like, I mean, look at Joe Biden's history. It's not because Joe Biden is magically more progressive. It's because somebody, at least in the Biden White House, can read the room. Well said. <laughs> and somebody in the White House might be concerned uh, that there might be so much antagonism towards a Biden White House that it'll spill over into a potential Kamala Harris bid. Sometimes you got to look at the politics. Yep. Sarah, always a pleasure having you. Congratulations hey, on the me. book. I hope you get some fresh air outside, even if it's freezing cold. Yeah. Um, don't <laughs> get stuck to try inside that. too long. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, All right, go so check much. out Sarah's book. It is in, uh, we have it in the information section. It is out now. Buy it from a good place, like maybe Red Emma's or the publisher's website. You know, don't go to the bad guys. That's, that's what we always say. Bookshop.org. There we go. Bookshop.org is backordered, but I can recommend a few bookstores yeah. if you'd like. <laughs> there you go. All right. DM us those and, and, and then yeah. hopefully bookshop.org will get some more. That's great. You're out of stock. Congratulations. We're selling books. It's great. <laughs> Thanks. <Maybe. laughs> then you can feed yourself and pay your rent. It's always a good thing. Always a good thing to be able to eat next month. <laughs> oh, Take goodness. care, Sarah. Thanks so much. All right. We will be right back with the one and only Josh Pond Russell and Napoleon the legend to talk about the news of the day. There's a lot, a lot, oh, man, a lot. There's a lot of conversation right now about deplatforming and censorship. And 
anytime I make a, 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 I take a position on this, I immediately get bombarded by uh, well-known figures who say I'm pro-censorship. And I like to remind people that the definition of censorship, the traditional one, is when the state, the state is censoring, not tech companies, not... Now, that doesn't mean that taking people off of different um, platforms is not problematic. It could not lead <clears throat> to it happening to the left, which I've experienced that personally in many, many, many different ways. Um, if I were to take it to court, it would go nowhere, though. Uh, that's the problem with these private companies, and these monopolies. It's the system that is creating these problems. With that being said, when I call someone out like a Joe Rogan or Spotify out who awarded him with hundreds of millions of dollars as the largest podcast in the world, and he has on far-right, uh, alt-right in some cases, people who line with white supremacists, boogaloo boys, and he puts out messages like uh, about vaccines or uh, that mimic Q or deny, you know, question whether or not COVID is real. I mean, these are things that we can't say on YouTube, just to make that very clear, because there are community standards. There are standards and editorial rules, just as this, a newspaper, you can't say, just as... And yet they're monetizing, making money off of these vehicles. Now, there is a bill that uh, DeSantis out of Florida, uh, he wants to push to take on these tech companies. So let's, uh, let's show that real quick. Consequences of big tech censorship are felt far and wide. Take, for example, big tech's approach to censoring criticism of pseudoscientific lockdowns during the coronavirus pandemic. Well, these lockdowns were almost universally rejected in pre-COVID pandemic preparedness plans. Lockdowns at the time of the pandemic were favored by the, quote, narrative. And so in the name of, quote, science, articles and posts warning against lockdowns were taken down and censored. The result has been the destruction of millions of lives across America as well as increased deaths from suicide, substance abuse, and despair. We're going to take aim at those companies and pull back the veil and make sure these guys don't continue to find loopholes and gray areas to live above the law. Uh, under our proposal, if a technology company deplatforms a candidate for elected office in Florida during an election, a company will face a daily fine of $100,000 until the candidate's access to the platform is restored. Again, any Floridian can deplatform any candidate they choose. You simply unsubscribe, and it's a right that I believe belongs with the citizen. Um, what really concerns me about this is he even says it. We're going to use loopholes. We're going to use loopholes. To me, it feels like they're basically what, what was, an, was a more traditional concern about censorship and deplatforming and the power of tech has now to me seems like it's just the right wing complaining that when they go too Nazi or too far right or whatever the thing is that they're being deplatformed for, inciting violence or COVID denial or election denial, um, the loophole is, well, they're a candidate. They can do that. Napoleon, you're a, an artist. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I imagine that you have some opinions about free speech and, and these platforms, but yeah, uh, are there limits? Um. I mean, like they they they'll have t uh, terms of use and and things that you sign up for when you when you get on these platforms. I do agree that there is a problem with with I, I faced with a problem actually last week. 
uh, on Facebook, my, my page is verified and they weren't giving me access to my own page saying that I reached a certain type of audience and they had to verify me and I verified myself the whole way and they restricted my access for like, I had to get somebody to help me to get it back. So there is a problem with them having so much power and, and, and certain people don't have recourse, but the way uh, DeSantis is positioning it is strictly political. It's strictly to, 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 uh, to support the people from his ideology. It, it has nothing to do with uh, fairness or anything like that. that that's why I, I don't agree with, with, with his intent when it comes to doing what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, the well, just the obvious answer is to be breaking up these tech monopolies so they don't have so much power in the first place. You know, like I don't want either, um, you know, CEOs or, you know, some boardroom deciding um, whether I can be on a platform as much as I don't want the government deciding that either. And and the answer to that, I think, is to have these platforms have less power, uh, not for the government to pass laws so that, you know, they can cry if they're, you know, if they're... Um, party violates terms of service because they're so outrageous. Well, I mean, it's like, it where's the limit too? listen, like some of these folks have been saying things that are actually just against the law, like to incite violence is not about platforming or free speech. It is against the law. So, you know, I, I think like when they're cr- trying to create this like left right alliance on this issue, it gets very murky. And there are some very legitimate concerns about big business as we're all concerned about monopolies. But when it goes from anti-monopoly conversation, as you just said, you know, Joshua, into this like crybaby, oh my God, I got called out for inciting violence or being a denier of, of science and having a very large platform, not to mention that they, you know, listen, if this were a fair game, if it was just about unfollowing somebody, then, then okay, fine. But we don't live in a democratic space. These, these monopolies are monetizing um, algorithms that push forward these, that, that they make money off of similar, off of, you know, accounts that are spreading falsehoods. They make money off of uh, hate and anger. I mean, I'm telling you, if we were all fighting right now on this platform, I'm going to tell you, it's probably going to do a lot better in clicks uh, than what it will. So, You're wrong. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> but, well, it yeah, I mean, it's also just the, the right-wing playbook of, use, of, of abusing the narrative of free speech in order to justify um, racism, in order to justify violence, in order to justify um, various forms of fascism is certain, you know, it's as old as our society. And that, um, so this is just another form of that, another expression of that. There you go, expressing free opinions over free speech. Okay, so let's, um, speaking of free speech, (laughs) you know, AOC is an elected official and she was using her platform to talk about something that unfortunately too many women uh, across this it's something that is very hard to discuss, which is sexual violence. Uh, She also talked about the attacks that happened on the Capitol. Um, For those who didn't see it, let's play a a clip of that really quick and then we'll we'll get to the, uh, the pushback. The reason I say this and the reason I'm getting emotional in this moment is because these folks who tell us to move on, that it's not a big deal, that we should forget what's happened, or even telling us to apologize, um, these are the same tactics of abusers. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I'm a survivor of sexual assault. Um, and I haven't told many people that in my life. Um, but when we go through trauma, trauma compounds on each other. And so whether you had a negligent or, you know, a neglectful parent and, or whether you had someone who was verbally abusive to you, um, whether you are a survivor of abuse, um, whether you experience any sort of trauma um, in your life, small to large, these episodes can compound on one another. There's no, you know, something really big happening to you and then you deal with it and then you move on. And then when something else happens to you, you deal with that and then when you, and then you move on. All of our experiences make us who we are. And, um, and that's also to say that most people live with trauma mm -hmm. and it's not to, and that doesn't even diminish, you know, any of the trauma that any one of us may have been through. Um, but it is to say that there is a community of so many people who can understand. So she started off by talking about her experience on Capitol Hill as, um, you know, before that, uh, she has been getting, and, and she's not the only one, she, she's just been very open about it. Um, she's been getting a slew of death threats. In fact, one very serious attempt uh, organized. Um, and then to have the experience of, of not just living with security around you, and, and, and I can speak, you know, having known her when she got elected, how quickly that happened and how she needed to be protected. And, and um, uh, people don't realize how, how much these women are going through, the squad in particular. And she's not the only one. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is a, a figure that's on Fox News every day. They mock, mock her and um, Maxine Waters. And while we may not agree with all the politics, these are people who get threats. And I'm sure that there are some on the right as well. Um, it is a unique experience to be in the public eye as a woman. And I have my own experiences. She's had her experiences. Linda Sarsour, my dear friend, has had experiences. Uh, Nina Turner's had, I mean, I know several people who've had very traumatic experiences that come from a basis of, of misogyny and um, the roots are really dark and racism. And, um, and to already carry that fear around with you and then actually see it almost played out and knowing exactly who they were targeting. And as she's talking about this, <laughs> to, to continue to get attacks from people, um, it reminds me a lot of Gamergate and some of the, 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 the online targeting and harassment. And uh, it just re-traumatizes you. And I know that personally, it re-traumatizes you every single time there's a flare-up. Uh, Joshua, you you work in these spaces. You work specifically around trauma, and 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 it's not easy being an organizer, and it's not easy being an organizer as a woman, or if you're coming from an indigenous community. I mean, these are communities that have just been traumatized over and over again, and they're trying to organize their way out of it. And so to have this over and over, and then when you're vulnerable, which is what they tell you to do, to connect with people, to inform people, you just get re-traumatized again and attacked. Um, 
that's the strategy, right? It's to silence people stepping up. Is that really what this is about? Yeah, I, I hadn't actually seen that that clip of AOC, so I'm I'm actually still feeling it in in my body, and um, I just think it's 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 so courageous not just to share your story, which is what she's doing, um, but to take the leadership of then politicizing it, right? Like, and what I mean by that um, is that uh, to actually connect the dots that the the roots of of the way that trauma plays itself out in, in this society happen along the fault lines of white supremacy, happen along the fault lines of uh, misogyny and patriarchy, happen along the fault lines of um, capital and, and class oppression. And, um, you know, so coming out of uh, most, I'll, first I'll just say most women that I know are survivors of sexual assault and most activists that I know um, come to this work by uh, doing healing around their trauma and realizing through that process uh, that the source of their trauma um, is these systems that we live under and that these systems can be dismantled and changed. And there's a great sense of agency that happens in social movements as the result of that. Uh, And also, um, you know, us, us playing our trauma out on one another um, and the internet is very good at amplifying that, right? Because um, one of the things that trauma can do to us is um, regardless of the source, and I'm also someone who's, who's come through a lot of trauma in my life, is, um, you know, it puts us into a fight or flight state. And when we react from that state, it's very difficult to be politically effective. It's very difficult to build social movements. It's very difficult to build solidarity because you are in a... Um, a state of threats, your nervous system is in a state of threats, which is why that when AOC comes out um, and shares her experience in this way, it's, it's extra powerful that she's able to center in um, focusing on, on what matters and uh, helping share with people that they're not alone. You know, I think a lot of people in our society think of trauma as like one acute experience of like extreme violation or victimization. And it is that, but there's also a lot of other kinds of trauma and living in a collapsing civilization. <laughs> uh, I mean, that ecologically speaking, but also the decline of an empire politically speaking, and also the deprivation uh, that we're living under economically speaking is trauma as well. And so I think the gift that AOC is offering all people, People is to be able to identify uh, with with what it would mean to to heal, and I think social movements at their best um, are able to elicit empathy and compassion uh, for the sake of healing. And so, when people pile on um, to go back to your original question and framing, Nomi. Um, to someone who's experienced trauma and then compound that trauma even further by attacking them, uh, whether it's conscious or not, that is absolutely a strategy. That's a strategy of an abuser. And when that gets weaponized for political, for, for, uh, for politics sake, um, uh, it, it, it does that to, to a whole movement. And I think when, when people behave that way online, it, it ricochets out, uh, as well. And, um, yeah, sorry. I didn't know we were going to be talking about this. I'm getting emotional. I, I, it was, it was, no, I'm, I'm glad yeah. that, I mean, in a way, I'm glad that you hadn't seen it um, because it's it's much more uh, raw, right? We've, it's, it hasn't become a political talking point yet. And, um, but this was such a big story and it was such a 
you know, an opportunity to, to, to inform and have a deeper conversation about something. And I'm really happy that she used her platform to do that. And it took a ton of courage. I mean, everything that she does now takes a ton of courage just because there's so much light on her. She opens her mouth and she gets attacked from every single angle. Um, and, and I, and I asked that question about, is this the strategy? Because, uh, she's also used as a, as, as a warning to other people, women, people of color fall in line. I mean, this is not a new tactic. It's just amplified right now. Um, don't step out because you too could experience this. Uh, I know it through my own experiences politically, like when I <laughs> criticize some people <laughs> for, for funding, they try to, you know, uh, go after me and then say to other people, you do this and we're going to do the same thing to you, literally as threats. Um, it's, it's a tale as old as time. And, and I mean, Napoleon, I mean, there's, there's no denying that this is like gendered, this is racist, but it's about keeping the masses contained and the, the masses are now gaining power and they have voices in Congress. Um, what's your take on all this? I mean, I think we, we live in a society of, of, you know, it's part of capitalism too. It's like, we kind of live in a society of bullying. We live in a very uh, misogynist society. I see it in my circles, you know, I, I, when I do music, but I also see it, you know, when, when I do workshops uh, for, for, for kids, like in, you know, Rikers Island or, or go, go to the, I used to go to the schools before this COVID and a lot of the kids in these schools went through trauma. So we had to do some sort of like, you know, being aware of the trauma that people are going through. And also just being from the islands in Comoros, like most of us go through trauma and like most of the women in my family, some, some men too, but men don't even talk about it most of the times in these type of cultures, but they go through it too. And I think um, it's a bold move and it's, 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 I'm really happy that, that she's showing people that they could be vulnerable and it's also showing her, her her human side, where she she's sharing a part a, a part that you don't see a lot. Like I'm pretty sure there's other people in 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 power and women who've been through things like that who haven't shared it throughout history. Of course there has been, and so I think it's very kind of revolutionary that 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 she shared it. And the fact that people are attacking them, like I think we need to protect each other. Like, and I tell a lot of men because I'm in a and all these, these circles are male dominated. Most of these circles anyways, you know, but like it's in a music game, it's like, there's a lot of misogyny. It's like misogyny to the 10th power. And I always tell like other men, like we have to be able to call it out when we see it. Because a lot of times, like, like Trump was the perfect example with all oh, this just locker room talk, but that, that locker room talk is not cool. And, and when you hear somebody do something, you got to speak up and we have to protect each other in that way, too. So people could feel safe when you have a movement, when you have a company, you set the tone, you set the culture, you have a group and, and everybody that like especially men have to step up to the plate and be responsible with, with like the position that, that they, they've held historically and, and, and what they could do, you know? I, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, you know, we just got a, a, a comment from somebody on Twitch. Invincible Queer says, in order for us men to dismantle misogyny, confronting within is paramount. More like taxes, but charity starts at home. I'm really glad that you brought that up because one thing that I'm asking, and I have to be more vocal, um, 
and this is why it was so powerful for AOC to come out with her experiences. Um, there's been so much online like toxicity in the last uh, few months. And some of it does echo uh, experiences that other women experienced on um, with Gamergate, which was deep rooted misogyny and right wing misogyny, like organized, I say, because it was right wing and politicized. And, and that has, um, expanded over the last decade into online communities, but it is structured and it is facilitated. It, it doesn't all, it, 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 there can be organic uh, recreations, but much of it is actually funded and organized and um, weaponized to silence women from speaking up about their experiences, just any experiences. And so one thing that I'm being very thoughtful about now is asking men to speak out because, um, you know, for the last two months, there've been a lot of women on the left who've been getting attacked, um, by, by, by men. And I think, uh, some of the men didn't realize how bad it was until they (laughs) experienced it personally. And they're like, we didn't even know. And I said, well, yeah, we've been trying to tell you. So I think what you bring up Napoleon is important. Allies need to speak up always on behalf of other communities. And I will, as much as I can, um, but we have to actually like call this out with each other. And so I'm, I'm grateful for you to, for saying that. And uh, final thoughts before we wrap, uh, Joshua. So just to say that, you know, part of, part of the hope of, of movements is that we, we can create, um, we can create spaces that make it easier to mm. confront and transform patriarchy because this stuff is the muscle memory of our of our society, right? And so the reason there's and, and I really appreciate Nomi the way you point out there's an aspect of this that's funded that's an, an intentional strategy, um, but but patriarchy is a system of control that is um, oh sorry it's a little loud here um, that. In, in addition to the intentional weaponizing of it, um, it, it, it just swims in the culture in a way that's, that's thoughtless for many people. Mm. And I, I think for, especially for those of us who are doing men's work, to think of it as practice, like, like the, the, it's muscle memory. The more, the more that you create spaces of vulnerability, the more you create spaces to feel your feelings and invite other people to do the mm-hmm. same, the more that you create spaces where people can feel whole. And whether that's in an organization, whether that's in your union, whether that's in a community group, whether that is in the context of a campaign, uh, the more you will have the layer of practice to be able to confront things when the stakes are a lot more serious and when there is a risk to yourself and when the consequences are are higher and because uh, ultimately what we're talking about is um, what does what's the shape of accountability both you know in, inside the left and and outside the left and accountability isn't just kind of some abstract goal or or you know like there's it, it's it's relational right it's right. it's how we build with one another and so um, that's why I put so much faith into grassroots social movements that are generally offline <laughs> um, to be able to humanize one another and uh, I, th- I think that's where the, the, the work is. And, um, and I think the more that the folks can understand that trauma is, is the way that we are reproducing these systems of harm mm. and that, that um, transforming our trauma is part of the work of movements, right? That we, we heal through um, 
through the fight, yeah. right? So that, that it's not just about the policy goal that we land on at the end of the campaign, um, but, but how are we getting there in a way that is ultimately uh, empowering one another to, to build, build broader power in society? Can I, can I uh, piggyback yes, on what he's saying? Mm-hmm. I, love, I love what he said because I've, I've noticed it even lately, every time I go on Twitter, and it, it, it's like a muscle memory too. And from, from the standpoint of oppression, I, I think like we, the way we speak each, to each other too is like important because I feel like sometimes we speak to each other in oppressive manners and we might not realize it. And it might be, and, and I think that once we, become aware of these tones and we, 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 we create these spaces where we can speak to each other in a certain way. I think it's going to draw more people in to, mm. to, to the causes that we have to, to, to fight for and everything like that. And I think if we start to mimic the quote unquote oppressive, you know, parts of this society or, or the heritage that we have, I think that, that that's not the way forward for us as a whole and, and for, for us as a movement. Well said, man, this is uh, a teachable moment. And, and, you know, and, and thank you to AOC for igniting this um, because now we're having these conversations in this space uh, rather than, you know, making fun of Ted Cruz today because we had a choice. <laughs> well, one more thing. Yeah, I want to know, what do you think, like, uh, like let's say us men, let's say I, I speak for yeah. men, we do to help things, for example, if, like uh, we, we see a woman getting bullied. We're not talking about on the street, uh, on the streets, obviously, but on Twitter or on mm-hmm. spaces like this, what could be things that we could do? I, th- I mean, that's a great question. And, and, and maybe I marinate on that more and I come back with more concrete. I, I think number one, I mean, if it's coming from, from a man, um, you know, say it like you mean a really amazing thing happened the other day. I had a Twitter follower of mine um, and I don't, I'm, I regretfully don't check my DMs and my um, mentions as much, but I caught this one and it said, I'm incredibly sorry for what I said about you a few few weeks ago. I guess you'd use the C word um, towards me. And it wasn't that he thought that he disagreed with me. Um, it's not that suddenly he agreed with me. It's just he realized somebody had educated him on how inappropriate that was and how, you know, we Twitter's very impulsive. So people just like let out. And so I think for for man for for an ally to say and and really, you know, it'd be great if it was coming from a man, because um, you know, when I defend Anna Kasparian, I suddenly get a slow attack. Or when Alma defends me or whatever, it's like a circular firing firing squad. It's just saying, like, you know, maybe educating a little bit more like how can she not have an opinion why do you have to respond that way it obviously just depends on what the the pushback is but i think informing um more people about how bad it is i mean even my closest allies weren't even aware of of how often we get death threats and horrible sexualized um threats of violence uh will get doxxed um I mean, I've had letters sent to my family's house before, and I think just maybe for people you know in particular that could be speaking out, maybe just letting them know, like, this is a day-to-day. They're living this trauma day-to-day, today. Every time people open up Twitter and they see an attack or this, it's a day-to-day. I mean, I have had um, people I've worked for me who uh, in the past have, um, you know, expressed their emotional uh, interest in me. And I 
had to uh, say no. And then they basically retaliated against me. Um, And so this is, I mean, this happens a lot with women. And so maybe letting more men know that like, this is the norm. And then when you see something calling it out and saying, yeah, like, is that really, you can disagree with this person. Why do you have to say that to them? I think that's a start. I can think more deeply about this. And if, you know, Joshua, you have any ideas and you work in this space, you know, please feel free to, to contribute. Um, But um, yeah, I appreciate that question. And and if anybody else has ideas, I do want to just say before we wrap, uh, there's some breaking news that is important enough to mention (laughs) on air. Jeff Bezos is stepping down as CEO of Amazon. He'll transition to the role of executive chair. So uh, I don't know what that means. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but last time I've seen things like that happen, it's usually because there's some sort of legal situation. Don't forget, he just went through an extraordinary divorce where his ex-wife is now one of the world's richest people because she took half of his money. (laughs) So, all right. uh, We also have a birthday in the house, Joshua Con russell It's your birthday this week. Happy birthday, fellow Aquarius. Woo! Yeah. I didn't even know. It was was recently your birthday too, right? (laughs) Thanks for reminding me. (laughs) <laughs> a little under a week ago yes Got thank you. you well happy birthday sorry i missed it thank you so I'm much glad I appreciate we can celebrate guys. together Bye. it's called my family always celebrated birthday week because i used to get the super bowl on my birthday a lot um before they changed the super bowl to a little bit later we'd always get snowstorms and snowed i mean snowed in on my birthday so you probably have the same experience well you're not in new york but <laughs> i got that but a lot. i was growing up Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, mm-hmm. um, so it was birthday week in case there was a day when you could actually go outside and like the streets were <laughs> maneuverable. <laughs> All right. Just celebrate. Yeah. Celebrate something, right? Find, <laughs> so find the exactly. things to celebrate. Yeah. The little yeah. things. Mm-hmm. Happy birthday, Joshua Con Russell, Napoleon, the legend, always a pleasure. And thank you to everybody who's been joining us in the chats. I'm going to give you guys some shout outs right now. Uh, we have Craven James. Uh, whenever Nomi is having sound issues, does that make this the no mic E show? <laughs> yeah, I'm having, it's very strange. Uh, I think it's gotten a little bit better. We played around, but I, I updated my system right before I went on um, the majority report. And even though all the settings were right, trust me, I got tons of people telling me to fix the settings. I was like, at this stage, I do know how to play with the settings. Uh, it was still, it wasn't recognizing my microphone on the show. And so I think we fixed a little bit of it, but it's not perfect. So I apologize for those of you sound addicts. Oh, we, we hear and, and know <laughs> I get the messages, trust me. Um, Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska sends his love. And Jewel says, remember Anita Hill? Exactly. Uh, RY, solar panels on the White House, 2021. I love how he always says this. Uh, Rayleigh. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much for the regular Super Chat donations. And says, just upgraded my Patreon to be in the book club. Oh my God, you're in the four months, four books a month club. Yes. To get me off uh, looking at screens all the time. Never have to read that many books, even in college, engineering degree. Oh, that's an, any tips to share? It's interesting you bring that up. And thank you for joining the book club. And if you don't know about the book club, we just launched a book club. Uh, we have three different programs. You can either read one book a month, two books a month, or four books a month. Uh, it's an exciting program. We just partnered up with some publishers. We're going to announce that very soon. But um, and we also interview the authors and have conversations around books if the authors are available. But uh, yeah, go check that out at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. 
Um, I'm hoping to do a podcast with somebody who can talk about speed reading. I'm looking for the right person. I think there's lots of different tricks. Trust me, I need it myself too, because I'm doing the four books a month. So I will be learning with you. And, oh man, do I have to say this out loud? Jimmy Dore's hair dye <laughs> on Twitch says, sellouts, just kidding. Hilarious. So funny. Ha ha ha. And thank you to Harvey K, Professor Harvey K, whose book, uh, was our first book of the book club. He has, if you haven't heard his interviews already, you can go check him out in, in the backlog, but he is on our show regularly and he's in the chats daily. So thank you so much for joining us on Twitch and YouTube, Professor Harvey K. And huge thank you to Midi Docs and Mario Q for working the algorithms. And of course, this was a busy day to the moderators, Bob Choke in the Orb and Chuck Diesel on YouTube. All those mods, thank you for your tireless work. And Dorian Sapiens and A Difficult Truth and Nug Wrangler on Twitch. I want to know some of the meanings of these names. If you guys could tell us in the future, thank you for keeping our chat room troll free. We will be back tomorrow, same time, same place on Twitch, on YouTube, and anywhere you get a podcast, of course, you get access to the show as well. 3 p.m. Eastern, much love, solidarity. We'll see you tomorrow.